Well, if you have been at this uh, Christian life thing for, for any number of years, if you haven't, that's okay, uh, you sometimes get to a place where you think that you're doing pretty well with your faith. And then life, or God, I guess it depends upon your theology, uh, throws a simple, basic faith test at you. It just seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, it could be in the form of doubt, could be in the form of pressure, could be in the form of fear, could be in the form of a number of different things. And it was a moment when we needed our faith, and our faith didn't even show up. I mean, it was nowhere to be found. And, and to make matters worse, a lot of times it's something that you have failed at uh, in the past, maybe even many times, and you swore you'd never do it again. Or, maybe even worse, it's something that disappeared for years. And then it came back and it reared its ugly head. Uh, some of you know that I grew up across the street from a horse farm, and uh, there was a young boy across the street from me. He's, uh, he was my brother's age, so he's five years younger than me, and he uh, was a winner in Berlin in the late 1980s of the World Cup. He's a very well-known uh, polo player. In fact, if you go down to Florida, people who know who he is, and uh, uh, his dad uh, taught me how to ride a horse, obviously taught him how to ride a horse, and I remember one time when I fell, and it's, it was quite a fall. The polo, polo, they call them polo ponies, but they're pretty big. And I landed right on my uh, rear end, my derriere, which uh, wasn't so padded when I was a little kid. And I didn't want to get back on. And you know what he said to me? I'll never forget it. He said, the best riders have fallen the most. It was a really a great lesson for me. And maybe that's the message you need to hear today that some of the best people in the Christian life have fallen the most, and that's what's actually positioned them for greatness. And so the title of our message is today is When Our Faith Goes Backwards. When Our Faith Goes Backwards, part of our series, Venturing into the Unknown. Well, this week we leave Lot, who we left him in, in Sodom last week, and his huge faith failure in chapter 19 and we come back to God's friend Abraham. About 2,000 years ago, a lot of people want to debate about when Abraham lived. I don't really get so much into the, the date debates. I always kind of feel like, well, you know, Jesus told us he was going to die. He rose from the dead. He believed in Abraham. I do too. I don't need to know exactly, exactly when he lived. So chapter 20, verse 1 and 2 says, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now notice verse 2. Now Abraham said of, of, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, uh, probably a title, not a, not a guy's name, king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Another version says brought, him, uh, brought her to him. Now some of you are saying, excuse me, Pastor Jim, we did this story already. You know, you're, you're forgetting. We, we did this already, sort of. That was back in chapter 12, probably 25 or 30 years ago, when Abraham left the promised land to go to Egypt because there was a famine instead of trusting in God. And he said he was afraid because we, we were told there that Sarah was beautiful. I'm not saying she's not beautiful anymore. Perhaps 
that Abimelech takes him thinking it's his sister because he wants to do some sort of a political alliance with Abraham, you know, sort of marrying into the family. Now, you know, when he arrived in chapter 12 at, uh, in Egypt, he was afraid that Pharaoh would kill him. So what did he say to his wife way back then? He said something like this, uh, Hey, honey, uh, just say you're my sister and they won't kill me. But it's been a long time. I mean, you would, you would think that 25, 30 years, maybe you've grown a little in this. But he kind of does the same thing here. You see, for Abraham, fear led him to failure. Fear led him to not trusting God, who had called him to this wonderful life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he's called you to this life and wants you to trust him. That's how you get into this life, by trusting in Jesus. And that is also the way we are to live. If you're watching us and you're not a follower of Jesus, he's going to, I believe, call you today. Chapter 16 also, we saw Abraham's faith going backwards. God promised him and his wife a baby boy, but they could not conceive. And so Sarah comes up with a brilliant idea. Why don't you sleep with my maidservant, Hagar, and when she has a child, if she has a boy, we can take him as ours. That was a a tradition they had back then. And so Abraham, instead of going, you know, no, I really can't do that, he didn't say that at all. What did he do? He went and he slept with Hagar, and they had a boy, And what was the result? Very predictable. Not good. A big fight ensued. Another faith failure. So as we venture into the unknown as a a world, as a culture, as a society in these days, we we really don't know uh, what's ahead. It seems like every time you get a little bit of good news, then there comes some bad news. And the question really becomes for us, can God keep his promises without help from us? Or do we kind of have to help God along? Now, I'll resist the chance of saying, how's that going for you, even though I think I just said it. So let's think about, why is Abraham moving this time? We don't know. Last time in chapter 12, it was because of a famine. We're not told, but we're told this, where he moves to. And where he's actually moving to is the edge of the promised land. And let me give you a principle for the people of God. This will eventually become the land of the Philistines. Uh, When you go to the edge, it never really works out to be a good place for the people of God. Do do you know any Christians that live their life on the edge? And it's really not going so well for them, is it? And they may not even see it, or you see the path that they're going down, but that is, unfortunately, where a lot of people end up. So here we have Abraham moving over to this edge. Abimelech lives over there. Uh, Abraham is rich. He's got a lot of people working for him. He's got a lot of flocks and herds. He's a well-known military leader. It's not like he can hide. It's not like he kind of kind of slip in stealth. They're just like, you know that guy Abraham with all that rich over there, over in Canaan? Well, he's coming over, over this way. And if you will, he's a marked man. And, you know, the, the upside and the downside of, of being a follower of Jesus is you are a marked man or a marked woman. 
just like somebody is out to get you. One of the jokes we have when we ordain a pastor, I remember when I was ordained, they laid hands on me and a group of guys were there. And then afterwards, they all kept saying, turn around, turn around. And finally, I was like, why do they keep telling me to turn around? Everybody, else, everybody wants to see how big the bullseye is on your back. <laughs> and so that's sort of the way it is. You know, there's, there's an enemy out to get us, if you will. Now, unlike Lot, remember Lot settled in Sodom. Abraham was like, even though he lived 2,000 years before Jesus, was like all followers of Jesus he is a nomad. When we studied First Peter, we realized and we studied that we are, as Christians, we are pilgrims. What are pilgrims? They are not people who are home. They are people who are on their way home. This place is not our home. This is a temporary, if you will, holding place for us. So we are here as uh, people on a, on a mission. And it's important for us to, to remember uh, you know, a lot of people, what they do is they're like Lot. We've said this before about the area in which we live. There's a, there's a lot of Christian settlers up here. We don't, we don't want to be settlers. We want to be pilgrims. We don't want to be living like people who are content where we are. We want to be the people who are excited about being on our way home. It's also important for us to remember that a lot of times we think of transitions, and Abraham is in a transition right now. A lot of times we think of Abraham, we think of transitions or change as always being good for us. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A lot of people find that certain changes that they make have the op exact opposite effect of what they thought. We've had, I've, a lot of my friends who you know, used to live in this area and go to this church have, have moved away, and they've contacted me and said, I don't know if it was such a great idea for, for us to, to leave. Uh, in those times, and we're all in one right now for the past year, those times of transition, we have to be careful because it's very easy to transition to the old ways. It's very easy to transition to old patterns. It's very easy to stop thinking and acting biblically. This is one of the reasons why it's really important to sort of maintain a disciplined schedule and, and, and you know, which what we say really starts not what time you get up, it starts at what time you go to bed. And so be very much aware of, of these things. And so why does it happen? Why does it happen that we can act this way so often when things are kind of seem to be going well? Well, for most people, I don't think it's that we all of a sudden change our theology. Every once in a while, you come across someone who's been in a long kind of slide of, I don't believe in God anymore. But for most people, it seems to me, in their failure, they would say, I still believe, but somehow what happened was my faith failed in everyday life. I didn't, I didn't stop believing in Jesus. I didn't stop believing in the things of the word of God. It's just somehow when push came to shove, I really wasn't, I wasn't up for it. In other words, you might, you might fail, and, but yet inside you still believe Jesus is Savior and Lord. You still believe that Jesus is God become a man. You still believe God is in control, 
But the struggle is not in your theology. The struggle is in living out your theology. The struggle is in daily faith. Your daily walk with Jesus. Your struggle becomes everyday life, often because you have fallen out of the regular disciplines and routines that you were in before that keep you in the way of Jesus. Maybe there's a reason why God has us come to church once a week, to sort of remind us. Maybe there's a reason why the disciples went house to house. We do community groups, so, so people are sort of being tethered, if you will, uh, to the faith, to the, to the word of God. Last week, I probably angered some of you when I, when I said that we have to be very, very careful of this uh, rise of Christian nationalism. Now, you might say, why would, you, why would you think like that, Pastor Jim? And a couple of people contacted me, and we had some nice dialogues about it. I try to always put myself in the place of someone who doesn't follow Jesus. Again, if that's you, we're glad that you've joined us here today. And I always try to put myself in in the place of such a person and and think that the way they do. Now, at this point in time, given the political atmosphere that's out there right now, and this is one thing I just want to stop and say for a second. I talked for a second ago about me being an ordained pastor. As I often say, that that and $5 will get me a really nice drink at Starbucks. So it's not really, I, don't, I, I take it seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously about it. But where you work or in your house, if you're the only believer or one of a few believers, do you realize you are the pastor of your workplace? Do you realize you are the pastor of your home? So let's just think about you being the Maybe you're the pastor of the family gathering because you're the only believer there. Make sure you separate the pastoral from the political because if you don't, you know how a lot of people who don't follow Jesus think of us right now as just another angry mob with an agenda. That's how a lot of people are starting to see us. We have to be very, very careful to differentiate ourselves from that. Does that mean we're not involved in politics? Of course we're involved in politics. Does that mean we don't vote? Of course we vote. But we have to be very, very careful in the, in the listening to people and the tone in which we speak to people. Why? Because the gospel is more important than politics. Now, if you disagree with me on that, that's fine. You really got to examine yourself to see if you're a Christian. Because the politicians, they keep changing every few years. But the king is on the throne and will continue to remain on the throne. What happens to a lot of people when we act like that, to them, it makes our gospel inconsistent. And that's what's going to happen to Abraham in this passage. Or it makes our gospel look, if you will, almost non-existent. To a world far from God, our failure to live out the promises of God in love gives them an excuse to invalidate our faith. Now, God's not going to take that. 
but we have to remember how important that is. <laughs> remember one of our cross-country trips, we were, we were out west, and I, it happened several times. We met, we'd meet people, and they'd go, where are you from? And I'd say, we're from New Jersey, and they go, well, come on, come on. i go, no, no, we're not all what you think. <laughs> Only about a third of the people there are totally obnoxious. The rest of the people are nice. They're just quiet. <laughs> And it's, it's, the, it's the only obnoxious people that you hear. Now you say, well, okay, wait a minute, though, Pastor Jim. What I don't like about this, though, is what you're saying. The truth of the matter is this. There is a double standard. Here's my counsel to you on that. Get used to it. Get very, very used to it. Because it's going to be like that for a long time unless the Lord brings revival. And so be very, very careful. And remember that your whole life, Jesus is teaching you. He's constantly teaching us. In chapter, Romans chapter 7, the apostle Paul said this in verse 18 and 19. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, another version says sinful nature, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. The English Standard Version translates that this way. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do. I want to do good, he says. I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, I will not to do or I don't want to do that I practice. I, he says, I keep on doing it. And so the Lord is constantly conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why we can never come off as better than anybody else. We said in a previous study that godly people are more aware of their sin than ungodly people. And that is not to, make, to beat you down. That is to make us see how much more we need Jesus, and it is to humble us and teach us to rely on him. So while Abraham is messing up, he's just handed off his wife to Abimelech, God shows up. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream at night, or by night, and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man. Ooh. <laughs> Another version says, You are about to die, because the woman whom you have taken, uh, for she is a man's wife. Just a quick show of hands for those of you here and here at home. If God appeared to you in a dream and told you a dead man, how many of you would find that a little scary? Just, just a, quick, a quick show of hands. Um, I, I think I would be sufficiently terrified. Sufficiently terrified. Even if I had that dream and it wasn't God. It was just like I ate too much spicy food or something like that. Uh, I, I, would be, I would be absolutely terrified and because, maybe because I know the Bible, Hebrews 10.31 says, this is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't care whether that's literally, whether that's you sense God's presence, or you're dreaming and you wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, verse 4 says, But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also, or an innocent nation also? Maybe he knew what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's like, we're not like those people. We heard what went down over there. We're not like them. Uh, did he not say uh, to me, she is my sister, and she even herself said he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart, another version says, with a clear conscience and innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
So Abimelech has Sarah now, and notice he doesn't question God's morality at all. A lot of people question God's morality. He doesn't question God's morality. He just says, I'm innocent. I didn't, I did take her. I thought it was the guy's sister, but nothing happened. I'm telling you, nothing happened. I didn't commit adultery. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I know it's a hurtful thing for people, so I don't, I don't mean to, you know, make light of it. But, but deep down, most people, believer or unbeliever, knows that adultery is wrong. You say, can you prove that? I, I, I do have a little bit of a proof in it. I, you know, most of you know I've been a youth leader for many, many years, much longer than any of the kids that I have ever, ever have in youth group have been alive now. And all of a sudden, you'll, you'll see some girl, and she's like this. And I'm like, what's the matter? And she'll be like, I'm mad. And I'm like, what happened? She goes, well, my boyfriend. I'm like, oh, you have a boyfriend. This is great. My boyfriend cheated on me. And I'm like, what did he do? He held another girl's hand. <laughs> so even middle school kids know that that's wrong. Even they know it's wrong. So Abimelech admits his guilt that he took her, but he says he had no idea that it was a man's wife. But notice this. He knows God is just. He appeals to the justice of God. It's almost like he read chapter 18. And so he asked God, will you judge the people because of me? God, are you going to kill me? But you know the ramifications that's going to have on people. And in a sense... That's the gospel. You see, all of our sins were placed upon Jesus, so all who would turn to him and put their trust in him, Jesus would be judged as if he had lived our life. And yet, because we get his righteousness, we are judged as if we have lived his life, his perfect life. Something else here, if you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to tell you this, like Abimelech, God wants to speak to you. God wants to reveal himself to you. Whenever I'm getting a message ready or, or before I come out here, I always say, God, I know that I'm just going to just go on and on and on and talking to people. And to some people, it's going to be like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. But Lord, I really want you to talk to people. So, so if you're a follow, not a follower of Jesus, could God speak to you? Well, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Some of your verses say universe. And so what happens? God wants to meet you today, my not-yet-believing friend, and he calls you to come to the foot of the cross and to meet him because he not only died there, but he rose from the dead. Let's go to verse 6 here. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you or kept you from sinning against, sinning against me, that's very important, sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, and 
The idea is, as soon as possible, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now, this verse is incredibly interesting. In this verse, he says, God says to Abimelech, you took her to be part of your harem, and my restraining hand kept you from sinning against me. Now, this is something we don't know. How much does God's restraining hand work in this world? We have absolutely no idea. People say to me sometimes, it can't get any worse than this. First of all, it has been worse than this. Second off, this is what I say. What if God does this? Whoop. <laughs> My glasses. Whoop. Right, right. And he does that with the world. Better not step on them. Those are my dollar fifty Amazon specials. <laughs> so, so yes, I'm that cheap. So what if God, what if God just lets go? So we have no idea how much he is restraining the world. And notice what he says. I kept you from sinning against me, he says. He doesn't say against Sarah. He doesn't say against Abraham. He says against me. This is one of those big Bible surprises when it tells us that all of our sin is against God. And surprise of surprises. Do you think there's a lot of sin in the world? So you think there's a lot of sin against God in the world? To me, a bigger surprise is he still loves the world. <laughs> that he gave his only son for the world. I, those are two things I'm like, I, I'm sorry, God. I know that I can tell people this, and I know I can understand this in my brain, but if I'm really honest, it just doesn't compute. The data going into the computer just doesn't, just, just doesn't seem to work. And, and when you hear this, that's why we look at Romans 7 that we just read about doing the things we don't want to do and we're not overly confident. And I would invite you, as I often do pray myself, that when temptation comes for you, notice I didn't say if temptation comes for you. I said when temptation comes for you. Pray, and I, you, I would pray this daily. You know, Jesus said, lead me not into temptation. We pray, pray that God would restrain you. In fact, maybe today, if you're snowed in, or whenever you're watching this or at home or something like that, maybe today, and I did this for a little while, Friday afternoon, maybe just grab a moment with the Lord today and thank the Lord for the silent, restraining moments in your life that you have no idea he has done for you. Absolutely none. I mean, it, it, could, it could be, you know, you, you were crossing the street one time and, and somebody was texting on their phone and God had them look right up to hit the brakes and not run you over. Oh, who knows what it could be. You see, friends, I think in this passage, God wants us to to see his grace. He said this to, to 
Abraham, Genesis 15, 1. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God had promised Abraham a son, yet Abraham lies, and a pagan king takes his wife. Yet God is so faithful to make sure that that pagan king is not going to lay a hand on her. Now, sometimes that doesn't work that way. And there's plenty of people in the Bible. Some of the people were sawn in two. That's why we live with the hope of the next life. So what is the Lord faithful to? He's faithful to the promises that he makes to us in his word. And he's faithful to us with these promises, even when we forget those promises. And I hold on to that for our church virtually every day of my life. As I keep reading, getting people emailing me things, and I keep reading these different blog posts and stuff like that, and, and I keep talking with people who I know who once walked with the Lord, who are less faithful now than they were before, the more you take the word of God out of the churches, the, the more the churches are going to weaken, that the Lord's promises still stand. And I keep standing on that. And God, in verse 7, he says, I'm going to return the man's wife to you, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. So what happens here? Abimelech's life, we could use it as a picture of Jesus. Again, his salvation depends upon God's chosen mediator, who is Abraham, to pray for him. Interesting that, that God would still use Abraham even though he has sinned against God. How much more Jesus, who never sinned. So once again, we see the gospel. We sin against God. We make fun of Jesus. I mean, you at home, you sitting here, how many of you were once a person who mocked out Jesus and all of his followers? Yeah. I remember people telling me when they were younger, we'll pray for you. I was like, you do that. <laughs> Yeah, and one of them wrote me, I heard you're a pastor. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know. Yet Jesus dies on the cross and offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life for simply turning from our sins to God and putting our trust in him. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning. So he, notice what he does. He does a, <laughs> A lot of the guys in the Bible are taking their time. Remember what it was like to try and get Lot out of Sodom? Abimelech's like, God's going to kill me, man. i got to get on this thing. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, great example to us, called all of his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid. So they're afraid too. He's now an evangelist for the fear of the Lord. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, now check this out. This, if this has happened to you, this has happened to me, this is about as embarrassing as it gets. When a someone who is a complete pagan rebukes you for the way you're living and tells you how self-centered you are, that you only care about yourself, that you don't care about people, that you don't love people, that your faith is phony. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, 
What have you done to us? Have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Ouch! Ouch! Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view? Some of your versions say, What was your reason? Some of your versions say, What did you intend? We would just say, What the heck were you thinking? Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you in view that you have done this thing? So now let's watch Abraham try to explain himself. Now, what should you do when this happens? Admit it. Say you're sorry. Ask God for forgiveness. And move on. Try to fix it right with the person. But watch what he does. Remember, his theology hasn't changed. He still believes in God but he's trying to what? Squirm his way out of it. And Abraham said, because I thought, there it is right there. Because I thought. A, a, an uninformed biblical thinking. Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. So, so what is he saying? First off, he says, well, I, I, know, I thought the fear of God wasn't in this place. You know what some people would take that as? I think I'm better than you. You know, a lot of times when people talk to people who are not followers of Jesus, if you're not careful, we can come across, instead of people who are in the line with the sinners... Even Jesus got in the line with the people being baptized by John the Baptist. Not us. You get in the line, Jesus, not me. I'm a Christian. Okay? So, so he doesn't even want to get in the line with the sinners. So a lot of times people will, if we're not open and honest, they'll actually think, we think that we're better than them. If you do, something's really wrong. So Abraham says to them, um, you see, here's the deal. This is like take foot in certain mouth. I was afraid of you because you're not afraid of God. What's he doing? He's blaming them for his lack of faith. I, was, I lost my faith because you don't have any. That's what we call in counseling blame shifting. Why do you do that? Her. Go, do marriage counseling. Man and wife, husband and wife sit there. I usually start with people. I go, oh, I'll give you five minutes to air your grievances. Husband, I'll usually start with the wife. What's wrong with your marriage? Him. Okay, husband, what's wrong with your marriage? Her. <laughs> well, we're done. <laughs> No, it's communication, Pastor Jim. Okay, well, how do you feel about him? I hate him. That's good communication. It's really good. It's really good. He's blame shifting. He's blaming the whole thing on, on, on them. But indeed, she truly is my sister. 
She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, that's not always entirely clear from the Bible, but let's just say, okay. And you're like, this is disgusting. This was before uh, God told Moses there would be no more of this. Now, you say, how, how could this be? And just you can check this out on your own time. Uh, what happened over time was when sin came into the world, it sort of put the world in this cataclysmic thing. And the gene pool, sin brought sickness and death, the gene pool became corrupted over time. And it reached a point in time where they couldn't do that anymore. When there's only a few people on the earth, there was nowhere else. You, there was difficult to find someone. Verse 13, and it came to pass when God. Now, let me just stop here for one second. Our, the translators are being very, very kind to Abraham here. Very, very kind, but in a way, too kind. When he says, our translation says, and it came to pass came to pass when God, literally Abraham said, when the gods caused me to wander. Little g, punk gods, plural. Can I quote that great, great theologian, Charlie Brown? Ugh! <laughs> he is talking to a pagan like he is a pagan. He's like, well, you know all the gods you all worship. Well, your gods caused me to wander. Is that a good, is that a good testimony, a good witness to, to who God is? So he says, when they caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place where we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So, so, so what is this strategy that they've had for 25 or 30 years now? You think they would have dumped it. We only see it happening twice. Who knows how many times it's happened? And, and, and it probably goes something like this. You know, honey, if you really love me, if you really love me, you will tell everybody that you're my sister, not my wife. Because if they want you as their wife, they'll, they'll kill me. That's, that was their strategy for all their traveling. Forget the fact that she would be taken into the harem. And this is This is amazing. The whole thing to me, his answers here in verse 11 through 13 is amazing. The unbelievers are terrified and Abraham is making excuses. Abraham is self-justifying. Abraham is blame-shifting. And so God takes Abimelech and uses him to rebuke Abraham, the father of many nations, the great man of faith. Abraham says, I don't think the fear of God is in this place. It is. It's just not in Abraham. <laughs> it's in the other people. See, Abraham needs to do what we need to do in a time like this. We need to remind ourselves of the promises of God and lovingly share those promises with others. Friends, this may seem odd to you. This may seem very odd to you. 
But I think that right now it is entirely possible that we may come to find out in the future or now if we want to grab it, when we have to grab it one person at a time, that we may be living in an absolutely unprecedented time to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not if we're complaining. But not if we're whining and griping about everything. Ooh, I want to be a whiner and a griper just like you. Yes, give me more of that Jesus, bro. No. We are the people who should be most of all filled with hope. We are the people who serves the God who raises the dead. We are the people who have the answers for so much of what, what is ailing people right now. Fear, loneliness, not knowing what's next. We may not have the answers for those things, but we have the promises of God on all of those things. But that's going to require that in those moments, we don't forget our theology in our life. We have to mix them together. It's very important. It's very important. It's also going to require a lot of integrity that we become more like Jesus. What do you mean by that? And like, why are you getting all hyped up about this? I'm so passionate about this. I think we are on the cusp of the ability to see people coming to Christ in droves or people rejecting him and, and, and putting nails in the coffin of their, of their faith. We're going to have to stop, stop treating people who are different than us as the enemy. And if you need some inspiration for that, just keep reading the Gospels over and over and over again. And watch Jesus. We're going to have to become more relational. The, the, the apologetic, if you know what that is, the defense of the faith facts that worked in the 1990s and the little early 2000s, people are not interested in that. They're not interested in that. We still have to know that stuff. It helps us. In the, in the past, you used to say to people, you know, if you were to die tonight, are you sure you'd go to heaven? They'd come up with an answer. Yes, I'm a good person. Then we explain to them why that, that doesn't work. Now they go, I don't care. I don't believe in God. Really, tell me what you believe. And then listen to what they tell you. And most people, what they'll tell you, they're just looking for hope. They're just looking for something to grab onto. And listen. And listen. Don't be so eager to jump on, down their throat about what they're wrong about. Listen and listen. And inside, keep saying this thing. They need hope. They need security. They need love. They need confidence. And then when, you're, when they're done, you say, can I just tell you where Christianity offers some of the things I think that you're looking for? And then explain to them. You say, I have to know my Bible well. We're going to have to know our Bibles better now than we ever had to. Why the church is taking the Bible out, you got me. 
I, I, most sermons are a bunch of self-help sermons these days. It's going to require we stop and always insisting on our rights. Jesus didn't. That we always stop our mode of self-protection. Jesus didn't. What did Jesus tell us to do? Jesus said, hey, somebody asked you to walk a mile with them, you walk too. That's what he said. That's what he said. Somebody wants to tell you their bizarre beliefs, you, 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 t- you listen to them and you go, tell me more. You don't, you don't throttle them with you know, your book that you read. But Abraham's doing the opposite. Why? Because what he wants is more important than what God wants. What he wants is more important than the mission of God. Loved ones, this was Abraham's chance. And this is yours and mine to tell people about God's faithfulness in our lives, in the past, in the present, and what we know will be in the future. You say, but I feel like nothing is happening. I feel like life is stuck. Great. Talk to people about that. But here's the question you got to answer first. This period of maybe feeling like life is stuck for you or life is going nowhere, is this going to quench your faith? Is this going to quench your love for Jesus? Or is this an opportunity for your love for Jesus to grow? Will this time lead you to doubt God's goodness? Will you forget him? Will you take matters into your own hands? Are you going to fail? Or are you going to remember the promises of God? If you don't know any of the promises of God, let me give you one of my favorites. Romans 8.32. He, God, who did not spare his own son Jesus... But delivered him us up, who delivered him up for us all, there's your cross. How shall he not with him freely, other verses say graciously, give us all things? Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Don't be so quick to answer. I don't want you to answer with your head. I don't want you to answer with your mouth. I want you to answer it with this. Do you believe it here? Do you believe that he's going to give you all things? I talked to somebody recently about my neurological illness. And out of the blue popped out of my mouth. They said it must be very discouraging. It was a non-Christian. Out of the blue popped out of my mouth. Nothing shall separate me from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Do we believe it? Do you believe it even when you fail? You think you fail, you think God's done with you. God says to Abimelech, go talk to the lying prophet. (laughs) Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored or returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. You can live wherever you want. Have you run of the land? Verse 16, then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you, I have given your brother, perhaps a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of a dig there, right? <laughs> Not your husband, your brother. I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you or is a sign of your innocence, a sign of your honor. 
You've been cleared from blame. Verse 17, so Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. We're going to talk about that in a second. His wife and his female servants, they could bore, or, uh, they could, or they, 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 then they bore children, or they, then they could bear children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abimelech here shows himself to be a man of honor and humility, as he blesses the failing father, Abraham. You could say, again, that he paid the price for all the sins and Father Abraham accepted the payment. And, of course, that is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus paid for all of our sins. And the Father, by virtue of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, shows us that God was satisfied with the payment. Now, in this sense, we see the pagan king acting more like Jesus than Abraham did. But Abraham still prayed for him. So apparently during this time, God had Abimelech sick and he was unable to engage in sexual relations. And the women of the area, they could not conceive. Oddly enough, Abraham prays that they can have children again and they can. The same very prayer that for years and years and years, decades and decades and decades, Abraham and Sarah had prayed that God would not answer for them. Let me ask you a question. Do you have something so pressing in your life, a prayer that God hasn't answered? And are you happy for other people when God answers it for them? I know it's not easy, but just say, God, thank you for, for blessing them. Of course, that's Lord willing until next week when things change. Well, like Mary and Joseph, had, they had no relations until after Jesus was born because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. There'll be no doubt that Abraham will be Isaac's father. So whenever you feel like a complete failure in the Christian life, Remember how gracious God is. Because here we're in the Old Testament. Fast forward 2,000 years and even, you know, the life of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. They're, they're writing, the apostles are writing about Jesus after he has ascended into heaven. And Abraham is in the New Testament a lot. But there's no mention of this. There's no mention of his failure. Why? Because he was forgiven. And in God's mind, when it's forgiven, it's forgotten. That's what he says. I take your sins and I cast them behind my back. It's not, I'm not to remember them no more. It's not like God has a, a bad memory. He chooses not to bring them up again. And maybe for you, like Abraham and Sarah, God's promises to you are slow. Maybe you feel like you've failed God. Maybe you look back at this last year and you're like, man, I have really just I've, just, I've just failed God. But understand this, the cross, at the time it was happening, looked like a massive failure. But God was doing a new thing. God was doing a new work. And loved ones, in your failures, remember that God is doing a new thing, that God is doing a new work. 
please, I beg of you all today, don't give up on Jesus if for no other reason, because he will never give up on you. He didn't give up on Abraham. He didn't give up on so many of the great failures of the Bible. The Bible, one of the reasons you know it's true is the main characters often look so pathetically bad. And he loved you so much, he died on the cross in your place for your sins, even your failures of faith. Even when the test came and you you just completely blew it. In fact, God even uses our failures, both public and private, to get us to turn to him and to be a blessing to the world. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus predicted Peter's denial. Of course, Peter, pff, come on, Jesus, it's me. I'm Peter, come on. And Jesus says this, Luke 22, uh, 31 and 32, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's other name, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. You say, but it did fail. He did deny Jesus. And when you have returned. Some versions say, when you have turned back. The idea is when you have repented. When, when, you, when, you, you, when he sifted you, when you thought you were all it, you didn't lose your theology and you failed, you thought you were all it, I've prayed that when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. What is he saying? He's saying, Peter, you're going to fail, and you're going to fail big time. But when you do, you come back to me, and you watch what I do with that failure. I'm going to use you to light up your little corner of the world because you're no longer going to be the proud, arrogant, telling God what to do, man. He still has his issues. It's okay. But I'm going to use your life mightily. Today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, ask God to forgive your sins. Say, God, today I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to turn to you. Please forgive my sins. And with your help, as I put my trust in Jesus, and you adopt me as your child, with your help, will you help me to stay away from those sins? Will you change me? Will you transform me? But more than anything, Lord, as I trust in Jesus, will you adopt me into your family? And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. You've already put your trust in Jesus, but you know you failed. And we all have. Ask him for the forgiveness of sins and ask the Lord, like he did for Peter, to change him and to strengthen him. It's a lot of ways it's, it's like what my neighbor said. The best riders have fallen the most. In so many ways, the best people in the kingdom of God have fallen the most. 
but they've been restored. And so when it happens to you, when your faith goes backwards, get back up. Come back to Jesus. Because the best Christians have fallen the most. That's why the Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And God has that for you. God has that for me. And I think as we do, we're going to see God do amazing things. Well, let's stand and pray.